0: Dr. Reggie Melrose, how are you doing today?
1: I've been better, but I'm here, and I'm with you, and I'm present, and we can do this.
0: Okay, wow, then I thank you very much for making this a priority. Um, As you know, this is a new series we're doing, uh, the Fresh Start podcast in conjunction with the Fresh Start Retreat Center, and we've had uh, other members of the staff and the advisory board who have been on with me, and... uh, Now, it is my pleasure and my honor to be speaking to you. So, at Fresh Start, uh, as I understand, the staff there is being trained uh, by you in your model for dealing with trauma. And um, I would like you to maybe talk a little bit about what that is, what your model is, how you understand trauma, and uh, And like in a little nutshell, just introduce us to your unique way of looking at things.
1: I, um, through a process of discovery, uh, experientially in my own life and in my professional life, um, discovered a somatic approach to healing the effects of trauma that answered all of the questions that continued to prod at me. Um, There was a ceiling that I hit in my own healing process uh, through 14 years of talk therapy um, where I just still wasn't feeling better. Um, And parallel to that, I was working in schools with um, students who had experienced a tremendous amount of uh, stress and trauma and they were not getting well either. Um, with all of my good intentions and my loving heart and my presence and, and all of my training at um, McGill, I was not able to break through that ceiling. In fact, I wasn't even able to really pierce the guard that's up for uh, whom I call trauma babies, for people who have experienced trauma, their defenses that are so necessary to their survival on the planet. Um, And I realized through the study of somatic work that it was really important not to take those defenses away and not to judge them at all, but to understand them within the context of trauma and how it changes the brain body. So once these answers started coming to me, I started to make a lot of difference in my own healing and in the healing of others. And so I developed an adaptation of Peter Levine's somatic experiencing that I call self-regulation training. And this is what I train practitioners to be able to provide to people who continue to suffer in spite of years, in many instances, decades, of all kinds of other approaches that can be very helpful with other things, but do not break the ceiling on the healing of trauma.
0: Okay, I I want to understand something. You're describing hitting a wall, hitting a place where I think you were saying that talk therapy had gotten you to a place and had gotten people you're working with to a place and then you saw there was more to go and you couldn't get there. Could you describe a little bit about where is this place where the talking just can't get past? And why can't you get past it?
1: So we have to understand how trauma changes the brain in order to answer that question. So um, there are multiple changes to the brain and the autonomic nervous system. So the central nervous system that includes the brain and the spinal cord, as well as the autonomic nervous system that has two branches. Sympathetic, that, that rises into fight, flight, or freeze, and parasympathetic, that then tempers that and brings us back into an equilibrium. Now, when we're in that equilibrium, we can ebb and flow with the events of our world, Uh, in the context of our relationships, uh, within the demands or expectations of us at work or in school, when we're in that equilibrium. However, trauma changes the brain in such a way that we no longer get to reside within our own skin in an equilibrium, in an ebb and a flow between the sympathetic and parasympathetic branches of the autonomic nervous system. So effectively, what this means is that we're in a pretty constant state of dysregulation in either extreme of hypervigilance, which can look like hyperactivity, it can look like mania, it can look like, uh, and certainly is, um, oftentimes aggressive, uh, paranoid, um, uh, delusional, Uh, Though You know, that comes from a high degree of activation in the nervous system that trauma causes, traumatization. Not all trauma leads to traumatization. Some people manage through trauma and do okay. But when it leads to traumatization, the proof is in the dysregulation of the nervous system between these high states of arousal and these very low states of arousal or seeming low states of arousal. So when we're in high states of arousal long enough, the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system takes over and it drives that into a false uh, a sense of calm. So if you can imagine a duck on the water and what a duck looks like floating on the water. And then imagine what it's needing to do underneath the water to stay afloat. That is the seeming uh, hypo-arousal state. Um, So when it's extreme in the opposite direction of this, you know, that we can really feel and see, and instead is driven through a natural process of the parasympathetic kicking in, driving this hypo-arousal, It looks like the person is calm and maybe even okay. But if you really look and see and are present, you sense that there's a body there, but nobody's home. And so these dysregulated states are what take over and become an habitual pattern within the nervous system when we've been traumatized. It isn't just the result of experiencing trauma. Sometimes we can do okay with that with lots of good resources. But once we've been traumatized, that amygdala, the part of our brain that is a fire alarm, is set off and it doesn't turn off. It's on and it's continuing to cause this dysregulated state.
0: And the, that wall that you were describing of hitting where the talk therapy couldn't get through it. Thank so you. So in simple English, you're saying, tell the fire alarm that there's no fire. Right. And Just that should take to, care of it. <laughs> yeah. And it should take care of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So,
1: so... Um, And it's beautiful. We have such good intentions and we have so much love and we've had excellent training and CBT is evidence-based and DBT is on the rise and EFT is wonderful. Like everybody, you know, there's all these wonderful approaches and that's great. It's terrific. Um, Even EMDR, you know. And yet there are things about these approaches that aren't careful enough, that aren't Resonant enough that aren't able enough to take into consideration the vulnerability and fragility of that kindling effect of the amygdala and what it requires in order for us to get anywhere. So it's, it has to be through sensation because the amygdala is located in the sensing, feeling part of the brain. It's in the limbic brain, which is the seat of our emotions, but very, very closely connected to the reptilian brain that only speaks the language of sensations. And so until we learn to speak that language, to speak soothingly to the amygdala, we're really not going to get anywhere. And that involves a multitude of somatic tools, activities, and resources for the kindling effect of that amygdala to shift enough that we are out, we, we, we slowly titrate out of those extreme patterns with, into the equilibrium that is still an ebb and a flow. We're not going to be a flat line while we're on Earth. Uh, But the ebb and flow is within a zone of optimum arousal, or what Pat Ogden calls the window of tolerance, right? Our nervous system needs to be within that window of tolerance, ebbing and flowing with the stress and challenges of, of daily life.
0: So there's a few things here I want to unpack. The traumatization causes what you call the hyper arousal or hypo arousal, either too high or too low. Okay. And then you the quote unquote normal um, functioning is somewhere in the middle where we have highs and lows but not extremely high and not extremely low. Okay. And the traumatization you were saying was sort of like impervious to talk. I, I can't just tell myself, "Well, there's no danger right now." Why are you? Why are you? Ex- why is your reaction so extreme right now? The the situation isn't extreme. You're saying it's impervious to language, and your expertise is very apparent in the language you're using. But I want you to say it to me in simple language. Why can't I just have self awareness and know that this is what's going on and just. Tell myself, hey, this is what's happening. Stop doing this.
1: Because the amygdala not only doesn't understand you, it's irritated by you. It's irritated by your words. Shut up. Stop talking. You don't get me. You don't understand. That's for other people. Right? You want to see a trauma baby get more and more rageful? Talk to them. Tell them they can talk to themselves and talk themselves out of it. Oh, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful way to help somebody who's had trauma. I promise you, you're getting nowhere. You're never going to see them again. They're going to run for the hills and you're never going to see them again. And you're going to further drive into the system a hopelessness that no one understands. So you need to tell the amygdala that right now it's okay. So how do you tell the amygdala that right now it's okay? You can't yeah, do it with Yeah, that's what I want words. to know.
0: The, so you can't do you can't speak.
1: You have to do it with sensations. You have to give the sensing feeling part of the brain and the whole rest of the nervous system that is modulated by it. A sensory experience that actually, in real time, translates into a felt sense awareness that, oh, I'm actually not in danger right now. If you don't give the nervous system a physical experience of that. And so, yes, it involves your awareness. You have to bring your awareness to your physical felt sense of being anchored and supported and planted right here, right now. Right? And so it's not about deep breathing or counting to 10 or doing relaxation exercises or meditating. These are all terms that absolutely irritate a trauma baby they're gonna run for the hills again I don't meditate that's for other people I don't relax really you relax let's see what happens to you you know I mean one of the the first things that we can do they come through the door we say sit down close your eyes close your eyes I'm gonna take you on a journey really I don't think so (laughs) close your eyes Uh, you think I'm gonna close my eyes what are you crazy I mean this stuff is just garbage to a trauma baby I'm sorry to be so it's like my goodness we've had this consciousness thank God for Peter Levine for four or five decades now and we're still having to you know convince talk therapists and CBT and, you know, everything else that it just is so threatening. It's so threatening. It's so unhelpful. It drives the shame and the powerlessness and and the helplessness and
0: despair deeper into the trauma baby. Okay, so help me out with one thing. You're telling me what language can't do. You're telling me where language fails, and not only fails, it's counterproductive. Tell me what language can do. Tell me how far can I go with talking, with words.
1: Asking for reporting on the felt sense. Language is for psychoeducating about the nervous system, the brain body, and how it works and why we're stuck.
0: Can can you talk about the the psychoeducating everything i've psycho- just shared educating. with you. Yeah. So psychoeducation. Okay, so mm-hmm. What right now when you're talking to me. That's psychoeducation? mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Oh, that wasn't painful. <laughs> well, <laughs> so just it, we're just talking. It, uh, yeah.
1: I mean, yes, we we are. And I mean, it can be painful because, you know, with with psychoeducation, depending on what words you're using, um it can really damage a trauma baby. It can really, you have to really understand how trauma changes the brain and the body and how it gets us stuck. You have to really understand. It's its almost, I, I I'm not gonna say almost, I feel very strongly that it's like an addict is, can probably only really be helped by an addict who has some recovery. And a trauma baby can probably really only be helped by another trauma baby who's got some recovery. You have to really deeply understand what this person experiences. And there is no way to get that through psychoeducation.
0: You know, something occurs to me as you're speaking that there could be somebody out there right now, I'm sure somebody who's watching this who has trauma, It just occurred to me that could be very, very meaningful to them to hear the possibility that their healing not only could be useful to others, but that really, in the end, the only one who can help someone is the the one who went through it.
1: Yeah, these aren't these aren't mental constructs to Dr. Peter Levine. You know, they're not mental constructs to me. It's really lived and felt in ways that make us safe. You know, it's all about removing cues. This is, I, I love this. Uh, uh, Stephen Porges does such a beautiful job of talking about we only need to do two things to heal trauma, if we want to keep it really simple. We need to remove cues of threat. And I could talk to you for 16 hours on all the cues of threat that we just keep throwing at drama babies. <laughs> I mean, I could talk to you for two days about those cues of threat.
0: That's what we, we, we colloquially, we call triggers? Uh, mm,
1: no, I, I think really they're very specifically being called cues of threat because they're cues of threat. I I think we could find a distinction between what people um, can readily observe as their triggers and then all those other subtle ways, sensory things going on uh, unintentionally um, that are cues of threat. Um, And besides removing cues of threat, The second thing we need to do is provide cues of safety, cues of safety. And this comes from a nervous system that has been through it. And that is very present, uh, really meeting the person where they're at and providing immediately tools of relief, not taking a history. Don't take my history. Don't take notes in front of me. I mean honestly I'm I'm sorry this is where I'm at today as I said I've been better <laughs> So I I'm, I'm just I'm just chomping on the bit here today No I
0: think that I think people <laughs> are going to appreciate your forthrightness that you're just saying it as you really see it It's refreshing It is refreshing and you know what at the end of the day this isn't a joke this is life or death it so is. we don't have time to joke around Thank
1: you I really appreciate you saying that because that's exactly where I'm coming from today it is life or death. And sometimes we have one chance with someone. So man, if you don't know what trauma is and how it changes the brain and how you need to be somatic with it, please don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. That's how I feel.
0: When, when you're saying somatic, okay, I'm, I'm understanding on a very simple level what it's not, and a little bit what it is. You said it's not psychoeducational. It's not words. It's not more words. So that's what it's not. And I understand very, very vaguely. It means not the mind, but rather the body. Or you said sensorial, which I I know what my five senses are. They taught me in nursery school, right? Seeing and hearing and tasting and what are the what are they, and uh, smelling Feeling. and touch.
1: Yeah, touch. Yeah,
0: yeah, but. I'm just trying to imagine what that even means in a therapeutic context.
1: Yeah, it means utilizing the physical environment to soothe in a physical way your physical body. The amygdala needs to feel that there is some grounding or anchoring to something that's stable or secure or supportive. What we don't need to do is create a sense of, um, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not doing what's good for me to do. Uh, People have told me to relax and take deep breaths. When I take deep breaths, I feel like I'm gonna have a panic attack, you know? So I don't have access to these things, right? So we have to um, be very mindful of which tools we are using and they are sensory and they are for grounding and anchoring and physical support and regulation through breath, and vibrating open the vagus nerve that connects the first brain with the second brain. That has to be open and clear for us to have any sense of emotional regulation coming back into the equilibrium. So everything is about opening a constricted vagus nerve, connecting a clear communication between the first brain and the second brain, and allowing the amygdala to have a physical sense that I am actually in this present moment where the tree is beautiful out there and the breeze is blowing and I am breathing in through my nose and I can feel my bottom planted in this couch and oh, if my back or my head is a little sore or tired, I can take in a little more physical support and train my brain to notice that I'm getting physical support right here, right now. Otherwise, we're ping-ponging between the horrible things that have happened and the horrible things that are going to happen. Thought, 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 thought. A thought about the past that's been horrible. A thought about the, the future that's, of course, going to be horrible. And that's where we live, back and forth between those thoughts, past and future. We've got to get people physically anchored into the present moment in a way that feels comfortable, not in a way that has them notice yet again that they're in a hyper aroused state. So, we need all those tools. We need to guide them to use all the sensory tools so that when we do have them notice what's happening inside, they're able to notice that it's a little bit relieved. It's a little bit slowed down. It's a little bit mm, more comfortable or, right? So this is the challenge.
0: Based on what you're describing, am I to understand that um, traumatization is chiefly in the body? Is it in the mind? Is it in the body? What is it when it does its damage? Where does that damage occur?
1: It occurs in the limbic brain, close to the brain stem, with that amygdala. Traumatization is the kindling effect of the amygdala. So, the fire alarm, the amygdala that perceives threat, doesn't have to be real, but if it perceives threat, and it will do this in milliseconds, if it perceives threat, then it sends off its message of alarm, flooding the brainstem and really the rest of the body, but most importantly, it goes to the brainstem, all the glucocorticoids, our stress hormones, to mobilize the body into a fight or flight response. Now, sometimes the the uh the amygdala sends its message and the computation that happens within milliseconds is to freeze is to become completely immobile in order to survive the perceived threat or it could go into sort of one of those in between places where I'm pretty shut down, I'm kind of floating out of my body, but I can still sort of move a little and talk a little, I'm going to try to go along with this or negotiate or do what I have to do socially to survive this situation but still be okay with this person, right? I mean, humans have adapted to learn how to do some some very crafty things, but it's all within a fight, flight, freeze, or fold mechanism. And so the the injury, if you will, is that the amygdala that's supposed to come off after such an event stays on. Sometimes the trauma is significant enough, searing enough, or there have been enough traumas along the way that a straw breaks the the back of the nervous system and keeps that amygdala on instead of it naturally as it's intended to go off once we've survived a situation. Traumatization is when the amygdala stays on in its state of alarm after the event has passed. And so we're no longer in present time we're in the alarm from that time, from that moment, from that experience. So that keeps us in high alert or the parasympathetic part of the nervous system that tempers this artificially shuts that down into what looks like hypoarousal. But right underneath that hypoarousal, right? Right underneath the surface of the duck on the lake is a nervous system that's going, going, going to try to survive. It's just been shut down to, to take uh, an unchosen break, right? It makes us go to bed for weeks or months or years at a time, not with our permission, not with our permission, but because that's what the parasympathetic branch is intended to do. You can only be like this for so long before you have adrenal exhaustion and or the parasympathetic taking over. It's all related. It's all related.
0: And, and, and that's why we can't talk our way out of it.
1: We can't talk our way out of it because the amygdala doesn't speak the language of words. It only responds to physical experiences, to sensory experiences. And if you talk at it, it gets worse.
0: Let me ask a really simple question. In normal day-to-day functioning, what is the function of the amygdala?
1: It is... um, It is our fire alarm, it is helping to regulate our emotions, and it is there specifically to ready us to survive a perceived or real threat.
0: So it's not always supposed to be on. Correct. It's always supposed to be ready. It's a fire alarm. A fire fire alarm. alarm that's constantly going off is not a good fire alarm. Correct.
1: That constant going off of the fire alarm is the injury, if you will, is the definition of traumatization. The kindling effect, the fact that it stays on even when it doesn't necessarily need to be on. But you can't tell that person that it doesn't need to be on. You have to give them a physical experience of, oh, oh, it doesn't need to be on. A physical experience of that. So you have to take away cues of threat and provide cues of safety. And there are hundreds of ways to do that somatically.
0: So doctor, you've described very well it, in to my thinking, the effects of trauma, and a little bit about how to undo those effects. Could you talk a little bit about we're throwing around this word trauma, but we ne- we didn't really define what is it? What is the event? What is the thing that causes that? You know, you could say there's a damage to the amygdala. Okay, what what damages it? What happened? What happened that caused the trauma?
1: So. I'm, I'm really glad you're asking that. It's very important for us to consider in general that there is no objective way of judging what is or is not traumatic for another person. And we've made a lot of mistakes with that for a very long period of time. And so I want us to fully understand that it is a subjective experience and it is based on the degree of vulnerability and sensitivity of the soul that shows up in physical form. And sometimes uh, the fetus is developing in a womb of a vulnerable or sensitive soul, of a soul that has... Um experienced its own degree of stress and trauma and pressure, sometimes relentless. Sometimes there isn't a specific event. Sometimes there's lots of stress and pressure. You're here to fulfill something and you'll do it the way I see fit. And some souls come here you know, (laughs) with a whole other idea of what's going to happen. And so there can be a struggle for many souls that get born into something that, you know, uh, soon enough, they're looking around going, huh? (laughs) You know, it can be really painful. So we've got a fetus that could be in a womb of someone who is vulnerable and sensitive, who's experienced trauma, whether that is relentless stress and pressure or a significant or searing event. Um, Once that baby has its delivery experience, so what is the delivery like? What are those early days and and weeks of bonding like? Does a healthy attunement between the caregiver and the baby occur for By the way,
0: that's something that nobody could remember and probably couldn't even find out.
1: Thank you. So how are we ever going to get to this with words? It's never going to happen.
0: That makes it very clear. That, that's very helpful. <laughs> the person doesn't even have words to describe what happened.
1: And they're really tortured. I work with so many clients that are just tortured that they don't have the memories. And, and the psychoeducation piece is, yeah, there might not be any memories i have to really help people to tolerate that this neocortex is just not really going to be able to figure it all out with all the details that it's looking for a lot of what happens and then throw in the study of epigenetics <laughs> throw in throw in the study of the transgenerational transmission of trauma that sometimes we're living the nervous system of the traumas that occurred in our ancestors and how are we ever going to get to a nice psychoanalytical or psychotherapeutic or cognitive behavioral understanding of trauma and how to heal it. It's not going to happen. We've got to work with the nervous system and that is what we do through somatic approaches.
0: That's you, very you, the way you make it. Uh, you make it very, very clear. It's 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 very clear the the difference and and the the limitations of of speech and language.
1: Yes, and then we can go on and talk about you know yes trauma is all the things we generally think of as traumatic.
0: So you're saying that the trauma may not be. A, a a catastrophic event. Correct. It could have been a seemingly minor event. Yes. Also, you're saying might not have been an event that happened to me. Could have happened to an ancestor. Yeah. Makes um, it really tricky, huh? Y- t- right. So it kind of sounds like you're saying it's not that important to figure out what the trauma was. Correct. Wait, wait, wait. I think that's huge, though, because I think people. They, they, hour after hour, will, will sit with the therapist, digging and uh, digging and digging. When uh, did it happen? Where did it happen? Uh, Who did it? No, uh, but, but this is huge. I, can you spell this out for me?
1: I know. I know. And I have so many parents that send their kids to me and tell me, I know something happened. I know. Now I need you to find it. They're not remembering it, but I you're, you're going to find it. You're the trauma expert. I mean... Sometimes these souls just come here and they're different enough, right? There's such mystery to God. How do we know what this journey is supposed to be for this individual person? And so they're here and they're different enough that life is traumatic, period. Breathing, getting up and getting out of bed, realizing that you're disappointing everybody around you because you're sensing how different you are, and that everybody needs you to be away way that you're not feeling. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's really scary. Uh, kids come here uh, with our agendas placed on them. They, they really do. And, and this is it's just something we have to re-examine if we want to heal trauma. Now, if we have a really important agenda and we got to see it through, then we're going to see it through. And we're not going to worry too much about healing people's trauma. But if we want to heal, truly heal people's trauma, we're really going to start to care who this individual person is, what the longing of their soul is, what is their individual truth, and how can that be supported, you know, and and how do we need to stretch, How do we need to stretch over here in our righteousness? How do we need to stretch to more love, more love, more acceptance, more love and acceptance for just how things are because it's stretching all of us. It's calling all of us to become more loving and compassionate by seeking an understanding of this individual human being. So it's very tricky.
0: I, I'm I'm very glad to hear you refer to sensitive souls who are traumatized by totally normal things, um, and I have long sensed that there are just some people who are, uh, you know. Uh, I could describe it in spiritual terms, perhaps you could describe it in in, in, in in more, you know, physiological terms, but they're just almost too sensitive for this world. And and those are like the deep, sensitive, artistic, creative people, such gifted people, but they're constantly getting hurt. Yes.
1: Yes. It's real. They recognize, you know, very early on. Uh, they recognize how harsh the world is, and that there is an agenda and and it, and it 's painful it 's really, really painful for some people and uh, I want us all to become more sensitive to that this is This is why they show up right? The identified patient, you know? I, I'm always fascinated by who the family is identifying <laughs> as the one with the problem. Wow. It's, it's the canary. I'm so grateful to that person. They're the healthiest person in the system. <laughs> I, I mean, this is, this is the paradigm shift. This is the paradigm shift that needs to happen. These canaries in the cage that are being identified as the patient, that are struggling the most, that are truly, actually, genuinely struggling the most, are the gift. They're the gift to that family, to the community, to the planet, because they call for us all to stretch in our sensitivity, in our seeking of understanding, in our loving unconditionally. Now, how does that not make us all better?
0: You know, what you're, what you're saying here resonates with me so deeply. Um, you know, the canary metaphor, you know, canary in the coal mine. The one who's sensitive to the same things that kill everyone, they just feel it first, right? In fact, in, in my book about recovery from addiction, God of Our Understanding, I, I describe addicts as spiritual canaries. Yes. And, and from a spiritual point of view, I don't know how comfortable you are with this or not, I say like this. Embodiment is unnatural because it's, it causes a sense of separation from the oneness and that itself is unnatural and painful. So if somebody just has existential angst that it's just weird and uncomfortable just to be an existence separate from the one, they're not crazy, That's they're 100% correct.
1: Yes, it pains me to be here with all the labels and all the boxes, I don't like them. I am part of an undifferentiated whole, and it hurts me that we need to know, are you this or are you that? Are you in this box or are you in that? Do you believe this or do you believe that? It's so painful, and there are many of us that are here really longing for something to happen. Something big, something really spiritual, so deeply spiritual. And we're waiting, you know, and we're trying to be a part of it. We're trying to be pioneers in bringing that forward. But man, are we up against some systems that don't want to move, that really need to be in a sense of righteousness about it. And it's hurting so many, hurting so many So I don't know, you know. I I think maybe uh, we just got to get back to non physical form. Maybe that's it, you know. Maybe it's not to be experienced ever in physical form. And I and I think I could come to accept that and just be longing for when I'm, you know, non physical form again. That might be. Can I tell
0: you? Can I tell you why I personally reject that Mm. and why I'm hopeful that this has to happen? in physical form. Mm. Because if I believe in anything, if I've been taught to believe in anything, it is that the purpose of this world is ultimately that this physical world is the ultimate place where the Creator wants to see perfection and that we don't have to go to heaven to find it. The ultimate perfection has to happen here in the body. So, you know, I don't normally... Do this. I try not to be too rabbinic in these discussions, but I just want to share with you something that one of our prophets said: the prophet Isaiah, talking about this world when this world will be perfect. The Hashem, the glory of God will be revealed. chol yachtov kipi Hashem diber. And all flesh together will see that the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It won't be an intellectual awareness. All flesh will see. All flesh will see together that God is the creator and that this world is his paradise. But the flesh will see.
1: Well... Isn't that so important for our discussion of it needing to be somatic? Because what you describe is going to require an open vagus nerve. (laughs) And the only way to get there, I'm telling you, it's somatic. You you have to vibrate that vagus nerve open. You got to vibrate it open.
0: No words. Okay, so so you hear that Dr. Melrose is saying, to prepare for Mashiach, we have to open (laughs) the vagus nerve. That's it. Wow. I didn't know we were going to get to that place in this in this interview. Dr. Melrose, this has been tremendous. I thank you for being so real with us and telling us what you really think. And <laughs> like I said before, it's not a not a joke, you know, it's a serious issue, so we don't we don't have time for games. So I appreciate I appreciate you being real and and I'm confident that um People will be be helped. God willing, people will be helped from this.
1: Mm. From your lips to God's ears, (laughs) thank you so very much for having me and for appreciating how real and sometimes urgent I get about this matter. Thank you.
0: You'll come on again? Yes. All right, you're booked. Okay. (laughs)
1: Looking forward.